you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Six Central. The Six Central. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to the Six Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. I know you hate me for saying this, bro, but I, again, just feeling blessed, man. Just feeling blessed. Why, why are you feeling blessed? Well, you know, um, guests that are willing to come on our show and more, more importantly, guests that I think have uh, some good insights that our audience uh, will mm-hmm. be interested mm-hmm. in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so we have a special guest uh today oh, all our guests are special um but this guy's special in, in a in a unique way um kind of like a made man i guess i don't know is that that's the oh, people still use that term uh please welcome uh germinal van welcome to the show man hey thanks guys thank you for having me on your platform appreciate it oh thank you thank you uh okay well um real quick um joel what's your relationship to germinal uh follow him on instagram i'm just kidding no um yeah for the most part (laughs) well i mean i i've been interacting with him on instagram for i don't know maybe six months to a year just you know commenting on his you know usually in in chat just i really appreciate a lot of um his posts and and i mean he's uh like you darnell to some extent i think he's an educator but he's using his instagram as a means to communicate ideas um you know lots of well thought out ideas that you know instead of maybe blogging them he's putting them into you know uh, an instagram post with five or six slides um and and then also you know there's there's layers to that but i think that's the primary means that i've interacted with him um yeah so it's it's been good going back and forth and and this podcast or this conversation sort of came out and we'll get to there in a second but after the uh canadian um david card was named as part of the nobel prize winner i was like hey you have a really good post on this listen to how bad the canadian media is commenting on (laughs) this guy and uh i was like hey do you want to come on the show and and talk about it so that's sort of you know something we'll get to in a second but uh, that's good that's good actually um yeah what was impressive uh when you sent me germinal stuff you you know you were sending it and i'm like man who's this black guy (laughs) <laughs> thinks he's smart. Look at black guy thinks he's so smart. <laughs> and then, and then I'm, I'm scrolling through his page. I'm like, yo, this guy wrote 20 books by the time he was 30. I'm like, I haven't read 20 books by the time I was 30. Right? <laughs> so I was, I was just like, okay, okay, you know what? I need to humble myself. Um and 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 go go through his material. And I was just like, okay, yeah, like. Um, definitely, I feel like Germinal's platform should be bigger than what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm, I was very impressed with it, and I was just like, okay, yeah, this guy definitely is thoughtful and has put in the work. You know, some you know how some people be on on, on social media posting stuff, and they haven't put in the academic rigor; they're just um, doing clickbait. I was yeah. like, oh no, 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 no. Germinal has a body of work that shows he actually does this for real. So I was like, okay, yeah, no, no, we need to sit down and talk with this guy but germinal um for our listeners who don't um know you can you give them some background on yourself sure of course uh so um i was born and raised in cote d'ivoire so i don't know joel if you speak french but i know if you're canadian and you live in quebec then <laughs> only as much as i have to right <laughs> you get you touch in french a little bit so i'm i'm a french uh, i'm a native french speaker 
And uh, so I grew up in, in Ivory Coast for a little bit. I did my elementary and secondary education there. And then when I got my, uh, my baccalaureate, I came to the U.S. to pursue my undergraduate degree in political science. I went to the Catholic University of America in 2010 and graduated in 2014. And then uh, a year after graduating college, I went to, to the George Washington University to do my master's degree in politics. So I was like uh, very into politics, running for office, and you know, all the, <laughs> all, all, all those conventional thoughts, you know, when you're in your 20s, you, you have a romantic view of the world, you think <laughs> that you're going to come and save it, and you think you're going to come and save it through politics, but that, that was a big mistake. Mm. And, uh, and I tried to go to law school for that, because, you know, um, in, in the US, the, the way the conventional way to become a politician is to become first a lawyer. You know, you go to law school, you get your law degree, then you work as a prosecutor or something for a little bit, then you get into politics. So that's what, so that was the route I wanted to take. So I took the LSAT three times, failed, and I felt intellectually insulted. I was like, those guys are not smarter than me and they're going to law school and I can't even get into this. So, uh, and I always wanted to write a book. So I was like, I'm just going to write my first book. So I wrote my first book in a matter of like weeks. Mm -hmm. I was really dedicated. I was writing nine hours a day, every day. And so I published my first book in 2018. And, and then once that first book was out, the rest, you know, is history. I just, <laughs> I, I, I was like, whatever idea came to mind, I would just go on Word and then build an outline immediately. Okay. And, uh, yeah, that's that's one of the very first things I learned when you're a writer is that whatever thought you have in mind, put put it on paper. Otherwise, you might forget. Mm. So what what made you sort of you know let's say transition to to writing writing books? You know, obviously being let's call it somewhat. You were you were going down the professional student route. Almost. Yeah. Um, what, what, you know, what gave you the desire to write a book? What gave you sort of maybe thinking you had the skill set or even, you know, the expertise to say, oh, I can write? So, in fact, I started writing a long time ago. I started mm -hmm. writing like when I was 17 or 18, but I would start and I would never finish it. I'll never complete the whole thing. Okay. So, and this is something like my mom hates. It's when people start things and they never finish it. Mm. So completion is really important to me. I was like, I have to complete the work. Even if it's not perfect, at least it is completed. You know, if it is completed, mm. then you can adjust to make it perfect or to make it better. But at least the substance is completed. And that's what mm -hmm. matters to me. I value efficiency over anything. Mm -hmm. um, so I started writing a long time, but I, I was never going through. And this time I decided to, to complete the whole project mm -hmm. and I will not relinquish until it's done. So I just did, <laughs> I just go like full bulldozer mode and make, and make sure that the book was done. Like all the chapters that I intended to write was, were, they were all written. So. 
Yeah, and plus, like, I guess when it comes to my writing skills, I guess I took that from my parents. Like, they both have law degrees. So, you know, like, writing is something we kind of have in the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad is a lawyer, always argued in court, like, writing motions, uh, doing legal research. So, I guess, yeah, you know, the uh, French and uh, French speakers, they have that touch of literature, you know, French literature. So. I guess that helped me too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so yeah, that's how I, I got my writing skills. Like I always love writing, writing something I always practice for a long time. So 2018, you write your first book. Where mm-hmm. does, let's say, the um, self-learning you know, stuff come into play then in your, you know, you talked about going to, to two different schools, you know, and, and let's say starting to self-teach yourself through YouTube and other means, where did that, when did that start in your sort of in your story? Uh, you you mean like at a precise moment or in my mind that like when when the click started? Is that what you mean? Yeah, like when did you realize? Hey, I don't need to go to school anymore. I can do the. I can learn myself. Yes, yeah, so, I mean that was uh, that was pretty recent. In fact, that wasn't until like 20, 2019, As a matter of fact, yeah, it's a. Uh, I realized that we we were so blessed. We have internet. This is perhaps the greatest resource to ever exist in the 21st century, the internet. And people are here fooling around, basically complaining about not having <laughs> anything. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> you can learn anything you want. You have the internet, the right. greatest resource ever. Let me, let me tell you this. Today, you have like, specifically in Africa, you have kids, all they need is a phone, and internet, and they become like web comedians. Mm-hmm. And now being a web comedian, it's it's been recognized. They have prizes for it. Those kids like are making a living off this, just for having the internet. Right. right. Back then, like you have to go to an actual agency and sign a contract, and it was a process. Today, just with just internet and your phone, you're good to go. And you change your life. Let me give you another example. Ha ha Davis. Look at this guy. Seven million. Oh, people. Ha, yo, ha ha Davis is funny. <laughs> exactly. But all these guys do is and today this guy is hanging out with Snoop Dogg. Yeah, That's yeah. the power of the internet. And mm-hmm. and and Instagram is one of the greatest platforms to actually build your brand and change your life. And people are not taking advantage of it because they're not focused. That's why yeah, I always say people are not focused. That's why they, they fail. When you focus, no matter what you do, you're going to succeed. I can give you another example. That little um, black guy, uh, Kabi, the guy who's doing, I mean, we don't see each other, so I can't do the sign, but you guys know who I'm talking <laughs> about, the Italian kid, the guy mm-hmm. who lives in Italy. This guy, like, got fired, got on TikTok. Instead of watching people doing TikTok, making TikTok videos, he decided to make his own TikTok videos. Today, this kid worth $2 million. Mm-hmm. It's focus. <laughs> if yep. you're focused, no matter what you do, you're going to succeed. But mm-hmm. if you're not focused, it's not going to work out. Mm-hmm. I, I guess part of it too is people are looking at the old way of thinking in regards to okay, I need to go to the gatekeepers mm-hmm. to be um, whether it's the the school institution, the government. I, I need to go to a gatekeeper to sign off on me as yeah. a comedian, as a dancer, as a economist. 
And, and in fact, when I started getting to economics, I, I thought of like, you know, going back to school. Like I really considered, I was even looking at George Mason University to do a master's degree. I was like, okay, first, you already have a master's degree. You're going to mm-hmm. go for a second. You're going to have to spend money instead of making money. <laughs> Just to be an economist, I was like, you know what? I'm going to force people to recognize me as an economist, period. Mm. And the way to do that, just produce. Even mm. haters are going to have to accept it. That was my mindset. And I went for it. No, that's a good point. Um, no, I just wanted to point out that um, on your YouTube channel, you have um, uh, a lesson you did on how to become an economist without a degree. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I thought that was very um, empowering for me. Personally, when I, when I was looking at it, I was like, oh, wow, like, yeah, you don't have to um, necessarily, um, yeah, have to go to the gatekeeper. Like, if, if kind of like I tell this to my students, mm-hmm. if you, whatever you want to be when you grow up, you don't need to go to school for someone to sign off on you to say that you're a hairdresser because exactly. you've been doing your sister's hair since you were 10. Exactly. Right. Um, and all these other things. So it's very important that, um, we practice being self-taught um, yeah. and be who you are. If if you are an economist, then that's what you do. You don't need someone to sign off. If you are a pastor, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't need to go to seminary to be a pastor, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, and 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 that's what I say. Like it's it's all about basically you you are what you do every day. That's what it's about. If you do the same thing every single day, you are what you do every day, and. Uh-oh. It's because like people are looking for validation from others. And that's why they feel like they need to go to the gatekeepers, you know, in order to get that approval. But as I said, like the best way, in my opinion, is to compel people to recognize your value. And by doing that is to produce. And the best is when you produce in a field where they're trying to have gatekeepers from preventing you to enter in. So that's that's the thing. Like that's how I saw economics, you know, economists that have their little circle, they all have PhDs <laughs> and they think they're like super smart. I was like, <laughs> no, seriously, they 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 all think that because they have PhDs, they're above people. I'm like, you're not above me, man. You're not above yeah. me at all. Like what yeah, you learn, okay. you learn that too, all those all the models and everything. All I have to do is to sit. Put YouTube on. You uh, watch YouTube tutorials. I practice. Yeah. I remember my first regression. It took me three hours to 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 do it because I did mm. it by hand. Mm. I did wow. it by hand. And the reason why is because I wanted to understand the mechanism behind it. Because I could have gone on Excel or whatever programming language and perform it five minutes. But what's the point to perform something you don't even understand? Mm. So, yeah, yo, it's a good. That's a good point. Um, because I'm I'm not a fan of SMEs. Uh, subject matter experts. Mm-hmm. Like I don't believe in that. Um, mm-hmm. I believe that there's a point of communication where um, we can mutually come to a place um, of understanding together, and and that, yeah, and and that's important. That yeah, you're not just relying on subject matter experts. Um, and it comes back to the study of epistemology. How do you know that you know? Yeah. Right. And a lot of a lot of times people are saying, "Oh, I know that I know because Germinal knows, and I trust <laughs> him." Right. And people aren't, you know, and people aren't saying, okay, well, how, like, instead of relying on a subject matter expert, um, we have to work hard 
and know these things for ourselves. Um, and you were talking about you, you know, wanted to be an economist, and and I was doing in my research on you. Um, you said you wanted to be, you wanted to win the Nobel Prize. Yeah, um, one day. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, what is the Nobel Prize? Because um, yeah, because we have the the recent Nobel Nobel Prize winner, um, David Card, who's actually from um, on the province that me and um, Joel are from, mm -hmm. um, from Ontario, and so uh, he just recently won twenty twenty one, and his work he won because of his work on minimum wage immigrants and immigrants stealing jobs. But first, uh, what is the Nobel Prize, and why did you want to win it? And then just give me some commentary on. Card. Sure. So the Nobel Prize is the most coveted prize in the world. It's a life-changing prize. Uh, if you win this, it's not just about the glory, but it gives you access to things that you would never have access to if you didn't win it. That's what it comes down to. So today... Oh, wow. Uh, oh, yeah. So today, David Card, if he talks to Trudeau, I don't know what is his... Uh, political leaning, but let's assume that he's, left, he's, he's lefty. If he talks to, to Trudeau, Trudeau is going to listen to him. Mm. But before October 11th, if he talks to Trudeau, Trudeau would not listen to him. Who are you? <laughs> I mean, that's how the world is, man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Who are right. you? Why are you wasting your time talking to me, but now you won the Nobel Prize, whatever he says, Trudeau is going to listen. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. It's a, it's a very powerful platform to get your, your, your message out there. So one thing I want is to inspire Africans to, uh, to strike for intellectual pursuit. Because in Africa, we, we, we are very involved in entertainment. And it drives me, it drives me nuts because entertainment doesn't <laughs> develop a nation. No, it, it doesn't develop a nation. I've never seen a nation on earth. <laughs> That, that that developed through entertainment. If it was yeah. a case, Brazil would have been the most powerful nation on earth for 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 playing soccer. Right. But right. soccer doesn't make you build bridges. It doesn't make you build your infrastructures, your hospitals, your. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, I, I I try to practice those African dances. Um, right. I actually try to practice. Them. They're really they're really good. No, no, I mean, like, Africans are really good at entertainment, but when it comes to intellectual stuff, we're not involved in it at all. And that's why we are lagging. Economically, politically, we are, because we, we don't prioritize those things. And mm -hmm. by winning the Nobel Prize, I could give an inspiration to young African kids and be like, you can be like me too if you want to. It's not about being the first African. I don't like those labels or oh, first black first days no wow I mean, just, actually yo general I, yo, I was just saying that to my wife the other day like yeah i, I don't i hate those labels as well <laughs> no seriously like when someone owns a business or black owned business who cares what your skin color is man if you're selling a good product or service i'll buy it. how mm. your skin color is correlated with your ability to perform so you know but anyways the point is i want to inspire those those people and that's why I even wrote a book called The African Nobel Prize. My friend and I, we want to create something like that. Even if I don't win it, one day I want to create an African Nobel Prize to give light to African intellectuals. Because there are many African intellectuals that no one knows. Here's the thing. If you're, a, let's say, an economist and you've made a groundbreaking discovery or you, okay, not discovery, it's not like physics, but let's say you've done a groundbreaking contribution, right? You extend mm -hmm. theory. 
and it's groundbreaking. But because you don't live in certain areas, your your work would not be recognized. So there's certain criteria that you need to meet in order to win the Nobel Prize. You need to you need to live in the United States, Canada, and Western Europe or Japan. If you know if you don't live there, forget about it. That's number one. Number two, you need to publish in those big journals. So the quarterly journal of economics, the journal of mathematical economics, the journal of econometrics, econometrica, all these top 10 journals. And you need to have a ton of citations. And plus there's a lot of politics too in it. Like what, what I mean by politics, like office politics, like, you know, you, like, you know, some people in the Nobel committee mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And also you, you kind of need to win uh, the John Bates uh, Clark Medal. It's a stepping stone to win the Nobel Prize in, in economics. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that every single economist won it, but most of them, if you look at the statistics, most of them won it. Paul Samuelson won. Milton Friedman won that prize. Uh, I think uh, Paul Krugman won it too. Yeah, so it's most of those Nobel economists, you see they at least won one or two prestigious prizes before winning the Nobel Prize. So the Nobel Prize is the culmination. It's like the the Mount Everest. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's the highest mm-hmm. honor that an economist can can ever have. Mm. So, well, that, well, that's good. I, I like the fact that, you know, you're um, instead of as, that idea of not asking for a seat at the table, but creating your own table. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that, oh. I, 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 I like that idea. Um, and so now, in regards to David Card's um, mm-hmm. work uh, on minimum wage, um, that uh, what well, well, can you can you um, unpack like why he won? So I made a post and Joe saw it. So I made a post about why he won and why he won was not for the conclusion he reached, but for the method he used. So the Nobel. Oh, so the, yeah. The goal of the Nobel Prize is to essentially reward methods that are used because specifically for economics, because the goal of the Nobel Prize is to praise scientific achievement. And the Nobel Prize um, consider economics as a science. So David Card used a method called natural experiment. So it's when you use observational data uh, and you consider certain factors that cannot be added when you use randomized control trials. So th- these factors, are, you cannot, like the researcher cannot control it, but he used observational data to, uh, to complete his, his analysis. So that's what he used. But it is a method that is not used by many economists. Many economists, like the, when they use observational data, they just perform like the classical regression analysis like I do. So what he did was kind of groundbreaking. That's why he won the prize. Not because of his, of his, uh, of his findings. However, it is important to stress that the Nobel Prize too is not innocent when it comes to political ideology. <laughs> yeah, they've always rewarded economies that tend to be more left-wing. So Keynesians. And the reason why is because Keynesians use uh, quantitative methods when they do their economic analysis. 
Mm-hmm. And why Keynesians use quantitative method when they do the economic analysis is because since they focus on the allocation of resources, the allocation of resources to some extent necessitates some, some planning. Because even if you run your own business, you have to plan. You have to plan where you know everyone goes, how, how much needs to be produced, and etc. So yeah, so that's why um, those people won more the Nobel Prize than free market economists. But now, mm-hmm. if you notice, the free market economists that also won the Nobel Prize were the ones who used quantitative methods. So in like, identity, like they, Milton Friedman? Yeah, Milton Friedman, Gary Baker, uh, James Buchanan. Uh, yeah, so these guys. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, they prioritize quantitative methods over everything. That's mm-hmm. the reason why Mrs. did not win the Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. We all know, mm-hmm. even though I strongly disagree with praxeology, I, I must admit and recognize that Mrs. deserved the Nobel Prize for the work he did in the field of economics. That's, it's undeniable. Mm. So, yeah. So, um, yeah. But he didn't yeah. win because the method he used was not uh, quantitative. Now you may say, but Hayek won. Yes, he did win. But why Hayek won the Nobel Prize? Hayek won because it was purely political, in my opinion. And I explained that in my book, The African Nobel Prize. If you read the book, the first two parts are dedicated to the history of the Nobel Prize. And I even explained, I, I dedicated like two or three paragraphs explaining uh, why each economist from 1969 to 1976 won the Nobel Prize. And you, and you will see a pattern that they all use quantitative methods. So Hayek did not because he did, he did win the Nobel Prize, but not for his quantitative method. It's because the, the Nobel Prize rewarded Gunnar Myrtle who was a socialist mm-hmm. and who, and, but from the inception of the Nobel prize in economics to the time Hayek won, it was only socialist and Keynesian who were winning the prize. So concerns were raised already saying that, okay, why is it always the same political leaning winning the prize? So to tame things down, the Nobel prize rewarded Hayek to show out that, you know, they're not biased. So that's why they gave it to Hayek. But because Hayek never used quantitative methods. If it was purely a quantitative method, Hayek would have never won the Nobel Prize. But Hayek is a Nobel Prize worthy, absolutely. He's a great economist. He's even the reason why I became a classical liberal in the first place. So Hayek, to me, humbly deserved the Nobel Prize. But the reason why they gave him the Nobel Prize, deep down, were not the right reasons. So I'm just curious, you know, there's there's an aspect of the conversation around Nobel Prize that, it, you know, you're referring to, um, you know, the political side, you have to sort of win this prize to this prize. Mm-hmm. Does that not diminish to some extent the the prize itself as acknowledging achievements because there's this, you know, let's call it the like special boys club in order to act and you have to first get in the club in order to to get the prize. Um, well, it's I see what you're saying, and, and you're right. However, human beings love hierarchies. That's why. Mm-hmm. Because when you are the most coveted thing in the world, there are certain steps you have to, to, to take 
and overcome in order to reach that. And that's how the Nobel Prize positioned it itself. Mm-hmm. Now, like, uh, that, that's why you may have done, or you, you, you may done a discovery or, or something, you will not win the Nobel Prize immediately. It's because the Nobel Prize uh, wants you, it wants your theory or your discovery to be subject to the test of time. Mm. That's why, because they don't just reward a theory. They want to make sure that the theory is applicable. That's why um, this guy, his name is um, Henri Poincaré, French mathematician. He was, nomi- he was nominated 58 times <laughs> for the Nobel Prize in Physics and never won it. Wow. Why? Because he was too theoretical. Mm. So it's true. Yes, you do scientific work. The theory is beautiful. But that's why I always tell people, like, the theory doesn't, a theory is not a fact. It's just an explanation to an observation. And the, and the explanation is subjective because it is told from the researcher based on the researcher understanding. <laughs> That's why when people may, may observe the same fact and they have different interpretations of the same fact. That, that, that's funny. The statement you just made is exactly why Thaddeus Russell kept calling you a postmodernist. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, <laughs> oh, you watch that thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's good. It, it's, I'll, I'll make sure to put that in our show notes page. I'll put this, um, you know, the stuff you've got on... Um, on, on this Nobel winning prize as well. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, I think um, it's a, it's a really good point that, um, you know, a lot of theory comes through observation mm-hmm. and also needs to be tested against observation. Absolutely. Uh, and, and so I'm curious um, if you could, you know, I, I do want to come back to that because, you know, that's, that's sort of, I, I definitely operate because I don't necessarily have the time in, in my life to do the empirical. I definitely operate a little bit more in what are the theory, what are the principles, and now let's keep applying those things. So I'm leveraging you know work like that you and other people do to to, to test these theories. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that comes back around really well to this guy uh, and and the work that his team. It wasn't just him, but we're focusing on him because he's Canadian, um, David Card. But mm-hmm. can you speak to? Um, because the this as I said, this whole conversation sort of came out of me sending you a link from Canadian, you know, media going like he proved minimum wage does not cause unemployment. He, like <laughs> he, he he didn't prove he he perhaps falsified because that's what uh, Karl Popper talked about in his book, The Logical Scientific Discovery. He said that scientific laws are by they are hypothetical by character. So you cannot really prove them. What you can only do is to either support or falsify them. That's why you test them. Mm-hmm. If a theory cannot be scientifically tested, it therefore it is not scientific at all. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, so to come back to David Card, what he was able to do when it comes to, to his findings is to perhaps falsify a general observation. But even that falsification should not be taken as, uh, as a proof because he only went to a very specific region in the United States. 
to conduct his research. Mm-hmm. And the minimum wage does not affect people the very same way. It affects people differently. And the effect of the minimum wage are not immediate as well. Mm-hmm. So when they, in, in, when they, um, when they implement the minimum wage or when they, when they raise the minimum wage, you may not feel the, implica- the, the impact immediately. And that was the case even at the time of Thomas Sowell in the 1940s and 50s because inflation was so high at that time, the minimum wage was meaningless, so it didn't matter. But then when inflation is reduced, that's when the minimum wage, you start to feel it. Because like the, uh, the point that the minimum wage is reducing employment wasn't made until the 1970s or 80s because it took time. So people should not just rush specifically left-leaning people. They shouldn't just conclude, oh yeah, David Card proved. He didn't prove anything. <laughs> he perhaps falsified a, uh, a generalization, but someone else can falsify it again. That's what theories are about. So, so would yeah. you would you say then he falsified the statement that minimum wage will cause an immediate increase in yes. unemployment? Yes, he did falsify that. He did mm-hmm. falsify that because in his research he found no uh, no evidence that the minimum wage uh, immediately reduce uh, employment. So, what would you then say about? minimum wage that that's that other statements about minimum wage or 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 let's say applications of you know the general idea that increasing prices will have consequences or or price floors in a you know general economics perspective yeah i mean it's it's quite obvious so i mean you guys heard about and know about the make minimum make minimum wage living wage but mm-hmm. the minimum wage is basically uh adjust with for inflation so when they so when they increase the minimum wage, everything increased concurrently too. Nothing is static. That's why the minimum wage can never make living wage, because when you increase the minimum wage, the market value will will also increase. So, property, the price of property will increase. The price of goods and services will will increase. Rent will increase. Like, mm-hmm. let me give you an example. If you go to Washington, D.C., where the minimum wage is $15 an hour, do you think you're going to rent a studio for $1,500? No. This, a simple studio, let's say in a nice area like Dupont Circle or Georgetown, would be perhaps three k mm. Yeah. And, and that's what people don't get. They think that when you increase the minimum wage, everything else remains constant. No, <laughs> things increase too. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. right. Everything the, increased. That's why the minimum wage will never make living wage. Mm. Simple as that. That's mm. a simple concept behind it. So, mm. and, and plus, like, when you increase the minimum wage, like, every business is not affected the same way. It, it, depends, of, it depends on the capital of each business. Mm. So I may have a small business of let's say 20 people. But if my capital is $15 million, I don't have to fire anybody. <laughs> yeah. I can mm-hmm. keep all of them. I can even hire more people. The, the increasing the minimum wage doesn't matter to me. But if you're a small convenience store and 
you know, you have like two or three people and your capital is pretty low, like 50K. then it's going to be difficult for you. So it really depends. It doesn't affect everyone the same way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that, that, you know, that, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, a lot of times um, trying to understand how these things work um, can sometimes be confusing. But yeah, I, I thought that was very helpful. Now, you wrote a book um, called Income Inequality and Economics. Um, So this still ties in, somewhat transitions out, but still ties into the uh, minimum wage. But you wrote a book on um, income inequality and economics. So why is there income inequality? There is income inequality because we have property rights. Property implies difference. And uh, Eman Hope said, I hate Hope, but I must, I must give him credit for this one. He said, and it is true. Two people who manage the resources differently will have different results. Simple as mm. that. No, okay, right there, we can end the show, right there. You don't have to say no more, man. <laughs> That's good. No, but it, it, it's true because here's the thing. Let's say, okay, you guys have your podcast and let's say I have my own podcast too, right? And we don't have the same results because you have a strategy that you use to increase your audience. And I may use a different strategy. You may have like a, a, a different payment plan that incentivizes people to come to your show compared to mine. So if I mismanage my resources, my income will be low. I may not even make any, I may not even have any income in the first place. So the point is that income is based on how you manage your resources. If you manage your resources well, your income will increase. If you manage your resources poorly, you, you, your income will decrease. You will drive customers and consumers away. They don't want to purchase your product or service because you suck at it. So income inequality is based on property rights because in, in a country or in a society, in a market economy that has property rights, people will never have the same level of income. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to have the same level of income. Those who are very good at what they do will outperform the average. Look at Jeff Bezos. Look at uh, Elon Musk. Look at those guys. They, they outperform everyone because they're good at what they do. So government even gives them incentive, tax incentive to, to keep performing. That that's what that that and that's what happens. So and on top of that, you, on top of that, you also have technology that is forcing uh, people to to review their skills because business owners don't see the point of hiring a human being to do something that a machine can do. So that creates inequality because the person who doesn't who, who doesn't have an income is poor. And the machine who doesn't get paid is getting all the work done because business owners are, are more uh, concerned with efficiency than anything else. So. Right. So does that mean that we're leading to more entrepreneurs as a consequence? Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully. And plus, the, the, the era in which we live today, the age of information, is the greatest time of our life to start a business. You start a business in your room. You don't even have to leave your room. Everything is online today. Right. Seriously, everything is online today. All right. you have to do is to go online. You 
purchase a uh, a, a, a LLC, uh, you you get your EIN, and you open a uh, business bank account, and you're good to go. Start a business, and you run it until it becomes profitable. And anyone mm-hmm. can do that today. Yeah, anyone. Well, I, I think. Yeah, I, I think like psychologically, you know, for some people, um, the rhetoric of income inequality um, is what people will rally around and fight for. Um, so um, they're looking at, okay, well, do I become an entrepreneur or do I fight for income inequality? And so fight, for some people, fight, they'd rather fight, fight for, for income inequality to get what? Equal pay? Equal pay since when? Mm-hmm. It's when you're not even equal to yourself. Why do you want equal pay? <laughs> right. Well, you know, but but it's 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 like um it's a it's a strong moral sentiment that people have um that people are constantly um repeating this idea um and so you would have yeah you're definitely gonna have people say okay well you know what I want to fight for that instead of um income inequality instead of um go through the rigors of uh, capitalism and entrepreneurship. Well, that's not, and, and, and that's why they will always lag. Simple as mm-hmm. that. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> here's the thing. You know, the people don't understand that they're... So it's important to understand the system in which you live if you want to make it. Rich people understand the rules of the system. Mm. And, based on the, and based on these rules... They know when to to go around those rules. They know when to apply them. They know when to respect the rules. They know when to uh, to uh, to to disobey those rules. If like there, like for instance, people complain about, oh yeah, like uh, the middle class pays too much taxes. Yeah, but the IRS said it is perfectly legal to avoid paying taxes. Mm-hmm. It is written. You guys can Google it. Yep. It's perfectly legal to avoid paying taxes. I did not say not paying taxes. I said avoid. Yes. And how mm-hmm. do you avoid paying taxes? You become a business owner and you write off business expenses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Workers mm-hmm. Are, are not business owners, so they cannot write off anything. That's why they pay more taxes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Simple mm-hmm. as that. And and right. uh, I think two episodes ago we had the it's essentially tax avoidance as opposed to tax evasion. Yeah, yes. we were, the yeah the the episode was uh, the Pandora Papers. We did uh, episode one twenty nine, um, and we were just talking about the Pandora Papers and tax evasion versus uh, tax havens, and are exactly. the rich paying their fair share? Um, and is yeah 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 yeah. So it, it was really good. Um, but yeah, um, part of it is this comes back to the basics of financial literacy. Yes. Um, yeah, which comes, which still falls under the umbrella of economics, which is the science of making choices or the reallocate or the science or the um, reallocation of scarce resources. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's uh, it, and yeah. People do not want to go through the rigor of a market economy. And mm-hmm. when you it's hard work. To, yeah, it is because when you start a business, a business is like a plant. You have to water. It until it grows, until it becomes profitable. People hate Jeff Bezos, but this guy's giving job to uh, 1 million people. That's a, that's a lot of people lifted out of poverty. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. the guy started, yeah, he wasn't necessarily born poor, but you see, 
there's one thing that people don't understand. They say, oh, yeah, like, he, he XYZ comes from a rich family. And so, yeah, but he could have still messed up. <laughs> In every rich family, they, they have rotten kids <laughs> who you give them all the capital they need to become independent and they still blow that capital away. Look at the Vanderbilt family. The Vanderbilt messed up everything. So it's not guaranteed. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's not given. Sure, you have an edge. You have an advantage compared to others based on the family you're from. Good. But there is no guarantee that because you come from a very rich family, therefore your future is secured. It is not. Specifically, mm-hmm. if you if you're meant to become an entrepreneur. That that that's what it is. So let let's take someone like Ken Griffin, for instance. So Ken Griffin comes from a wealthy family, or even Bill Ackman. They both come from wealthy families. They both went to Harvard. But what Ken Griffin did, Ken Griffin started coding at a time when no one knew about coding. He was ahead, he was ahead of the game. He was already a computer nerd. He understood derivatives and, and trading options at age 18 or 19. He opened his first hedge fund right after college. Are you going to get mad at him for being <laughs> successful today? He could have been like, oh, I'm home. No problem. My dad is rich anyways. I'm waiting for him to die. I'm going to inherit whatever assets he has. But he didn't. He went his own way. Are you going to get mad at him for earning $100 million uh, per month? Are you going to get mad at him for to, to have a net worth of like seventeen billion dollars today? I hope not. But I mean, obviously, some people do, right? Like, and and I think there's a, probably economic ignorance is a huge factor in, in yeah, sort absolutely. of that that perspective. Now, I, you know, as we we're discussing this idea of entrepreneurship and and mm-hmm. and whatnot, how much do you think? Like, if I think about the rich dad poor dad book mm-hmm. you know he talks a lot about there's this you know the education system really is training people to be employees mm-hmm. and and be to some extent being an employee is a risk adverse solution i don't want to bear the burden i don't want to and so do you think that that's a huge factor that oh um, yeah leads to oh. the income inequality as the means of of fighting you know my poverty or or poverty as opposed to create wealth creation so Here's the thing. The school system indeed trains people to become employees. That's what it is because you go to school, you get your degree, and then you go in the labor market and hope and hope to be employed. And then once you're employed, progressively, it disincentivizes you to take risk. Mm-hmm. You're making money mm. every two weeks. You're getting your paycheck. You live comfortably. So you're like, why would I? Building a it? pension. Exactly. Why would I blow everything away and start something with no guarantee that it would be successful? That's the thing. So it incentivizes people literally, not immediately, but gradually to not take risk. But when you're an employee, there are many things that you don't do that the owner of the business where you work at does. First of all, when you work you finish at five. When I say five, it's not necessarily five flat, but you know, you work, you don't have the responsibilities that the owner has. The owner is the one that has to, to do the bookkeeping, checking the expenses. Do they have enough in the account to pay all their employees and stuff? People don't care about those things. To them, like they think that the salary comes from if you fall off the sky. <laughs> but if the company doesn't have enough money in their account to pay their employees. They have to close. 
Mm-hmm. And who would be losing? The employee. If the, 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 the company closed, the employee would just build up his resume, apply somewhere else. But what about the business owner? The mm-hmm. capital that he, he used to, to start and it fails, he has to pay people back. Imagine all the debts and liabilities that he put down, all the collateral damage. And this mm-hmm. is something people don't think about. So, so you know, how do we, let's say, change? Like, I, I mean, my thought is, is not changing the academics of, you know, or, or the path that academics, fe- you know, feeds people into the labor market necessary to, you know, change the cultural perspective that, oh, well, technology means we need UBI, right? Like, is is there, you know, and I, I know you're part of, like, you're a lecturer for the online, I think it's uh, Udemy, I might not say that properly, mm-hmm. right? Like, is what, what, Things do you see that culturally continue need to shift such that, you know, the the UBI solution that that you know the let's say as the oh well technology is going to take over everything so we need UBI is sort of I think is the employee solution because I no longer am going to be able to be an employee. So what do you see as needing to change in order to to sort of uh, shift that that mindset? Well, is to is to include financial literacy. But financial literacy is never included in any curriculum for a purpose. That's the thing, because the school system trains people, grooms people to be employees. If Mm. people are financially literate, they're not going to be employees. Mm. What is important to understand is that every single human being is a company. You as a human being, you can start your own LLC. Mm-hmm. Joel can mm-hmm. start his own LLC. Anybody yeah. can start his own LLC. Yeah. J- uh, so, uh, J- uh, no, I was going to say. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that um, uh, Jay Z has a quote and he says, I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. Man, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, that yeah. he is the business, not that he exactly. does business. Yeah, exactly. Like just, like, just the three of us talking, this is three companies talking. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right here, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah. the two of us. This is basically we each of us can hire anyone else as a company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I think also with, with with the idea of financial literacy mm-hmm. in in schools and and it's in the math curriculum. And we did an episode on the math curriculum, and and so, but part of like you said, being an entrepreneur and being financial literate. literate um, in the book, um, Why A Students Work for um, C Students and B Students Work for the Government by Robert Kiyosaki, um, he makes the argument that, yeah, the school says they're teaching financial literacy, but he's like, true financial literacy is capitalism. Yeah. And they're not teaching that. Nope. nope so it's not. Not, it's not. It's not actually um, financial literacy that you're learning. No, it's not. It's, uh, it's not the... Honestly, the best way to learn something is by doing. That's like if for someone to truly learn financial literacy, like to be financially literate, it simply has to educate themselves every day on it. And as yes. as we all know, this is something you don't get in textbooks. Right. This is stuff like you go on YouTube, then you watch like tutorials, videos about finance. That's how I did. And I even started my own investment fund that I don't talk about, but Joel is following that page too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, I started my own investment fund. And a couple it's of years a, it's ago, it's an I, LLC. 
Yep. <laughs> I, I, I hated finance. But I understood that if you want to be rich in life, you need to have a business. There's no other way. You're not going to be rich off your salary. Your salary is just meant for you to survive, meaning paying your bills, uh, putting food on the table, and that's it. Mm -hmm. But not like to actually have wealth. You only have wealth by creating a business and investing in the stock market or you know real estate and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I think just simply like the idea that you know, from a, if you use value as a way to communicate it, right? As an employee, you're there's no way you're going to get more than the you're not even going to get close to the value you're contributing because someone else is employing your value, your labor, and yeah. as a means to create value. You yeah. as an employee generally aren't the one creating the value. You're the one fulfilling a task someone else has implemented in order to create value. Exactly. That's why the labor theory of value is nonsense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no. No, that's good. That's good. No, well, it's funny because like you, you're, you're giving us uh, the, these great principles for economic empowerment. Um, and you as a black man um, who, who's making the right decisions and has a, a, a great understanding of um, economic mobility. Now, you wrote two books, uh, Black America and the Illusion of Political Power and mm -hmm. the Economic Condition of Black America in the 12th Century. So my 20th, question to you is- 20th century. Oh, sorry, 20th century. <laughs> um, so, um, so my question to you is, uh, how are Black Americans doing um, economically? Well, uh, when you look at the data, we are the poorest the poorest community in the U.S., not just in the U.S., but everywhere. Or and that's because of racism? Cut <laughs> me a slack, man. Hell no. Well, well, come on. Well, why are you laughing, Joel? Why are you laughing, man? <laughs> I know what he's going to say. Hell no. <laughs> Hell no. If it was because of racism, no black man on earth would have been rich in a Western world. So, no, it's not because of racism. It's because of personal responsibility. It's because we're not focused. It's because we focus on things that are not relevant to, to the economic development of the black community. It's that simple. As I say, okay. I come back to my initial point. We don't focus on science and intellectual stuff. We focus on entertainment. And entertainment doesn't develop a society. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm, I'm going to give you some pushback on mm -hmm. this. Okay, so in 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 economics, we um we, we use the term um the invisible hand. Mm -hmm. So um so in 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 uh, I guess you could say um in social justice thought, the, there's the invisible hand of the white man. Mm -hmm. Um, and do you mean George Soros? the invisible hand of the white man that um. <laughs> that is working behind the scenes to keep black people from progressing. So we know that black people are not progressing. We're not being as great as they can be because um, our stats don't equal the same as our um, other um, race groups, other counterparts. So mm -hmm. because the, because, because we're not, um, because we're not equal to them, um, there, we don't see equity. 
um, we know that racism is there and it's stopping black people. What would you say to that? Nonsense. So here's the thing. James Fortin, right? He was a sailmaker from Philadelphia. He invented a sailmaking device that enabled him to create a highly profitable business. By 1830, I'm reading what I wrote in my own book, The Economic Condition of Black America. Okay. In the century. By 1830, he was worth an estimated $100,000, which is approximately $2.5 million today when adjusted for inflation. So this black man here started a business and by 1830, he was worth a hundred thousand dollars. 1830, slavery was a legal institution in the United States. And you have a Negro. I use the word Negro, yes. You have a Negro who has a net worth of hundred thousand dollars. At a time slavery was legal. That answers your question. <laughs> How come a Negro in the 19th century, at the time where mm -hmm. slavery was legal, was worth more than most white folks? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I'm not, I'm not familiar with this story. Was it? Yeah. No, no, I'm not familiar with this story. But like, like would somebody say, maybe somebody might say, okay, um, the white man gave him the white man empowered him and made him rich. Can I say that? Yeah, sure. But how they made him rich? That's a question. Mm -hmm. How? Mm -hmm. Freedom? He started a business. He was selling a product or a service. They liked the product or the service, and they decided mm -hmm. to buy it despite their racial bias, because we have to be honest, white folks at that time were not woke. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, like yeah. In the nineteen, yeah. in the eighteen thirties, no one was woke. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. Definitely, they yeah. have rich bias, but they put that aside and decide to purchase whatever it was selling them because they mm -hmm. like service. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny because I also think about um, Madam C. J. Walker, and she was an African American entrepreneur, philanthropist, and a political social activist, and she's and she's recorded as the first female self made millionaire in America. Um, in the Guinness Book of World Records. And she was um, born 1867, died 1919. Um, right, so, so she's still at, um, in the peak of, of, of a racist culture. Um, and she was able to, um, yeah, become a millionaire. Yeah, and and things she's and, and she's selling like black hair products, right? Mm -hmm. So this comes back to well, okay, well we can make an argument that the white man could not have helped her, mm -hmm. um, but that um, and I would also argue that this isn't an issue of people buying black. I don't think this is an argument where people say, oh, yo, buy black. Well, no, this isn't buying black. Even though she was selling black products, mm -hmm. um, she was providing a service. Uh, to black people that they that black women needed, yeah. that black women needed it. It wasn't like they're like, okay, well, I'm gonna buy it because she's black. Well, I'm gonna buy it because I need my hair uh, to be conditioned and to be healthy. The that, dumbest that came before it. The dumbest uh, insight would be, oh, I'm buying this because of his skin color. There is absolutely no correlation between the quality of the service or product you're selling and your skin color. Mm -hmm. 
there's absolutely, even if you're black and you're selling black products, does it mean that the, the product is good because it's for black people? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. The product is good only if it provides value to the person who purchases it. Right, right. And, 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 that's, and that's like the essence of entrepreneurship in, in, in the sense that um, ca- even capitalism, that you're providing a service that nobody else can provide. If you can provide a service that nobody else can provide, then you can, you can corner your niche or your market um, so that, yeah, you, you'll have customers. Now, of course, now the hard part about mm-hmm. entrepreneurship is mm-hmm. customer service. Yeah. Like that's the hard part, right? To keep, to keep oh, the yeah, customers absolutely. and keep producing. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. But so, I, I guess, you know, from the black perspective, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, black people um, are raised to see certain things and white people are not raised to see certain things. So for example, um, black people, most black people are anti-capitalist. Anti-capitalist um, in the sense that, yeah, they, they, they blame um, capitalism for, for, for the plight. So, yeah. so um, and, and, and so, I, and, and I wrote an article on it um, um, about um, Ibrahim Kendi, Ibrahim yeah. Kendi's work, um, how to be an anti-racist. And, I, and, I, and he's, a, he's, um, he's an anti-capitalist. And I was just saying, well, that, you know, how is it that he's anti-capitalist, but he's benefiting and he's profiting from capitalism with his book sales and being able to um, leverage that to build other platforms at um, academic institutions. That's capitalism. And yeah. so, and so, what, so what I was seeing was that his anti-capitalism ideas mm-hmm. um, mirrored um, that of um, slave masters because they were anti-capitalist as well um, mm-hmm. in the sense that they were denying black people um, their own property right yeah but yeah but but what would you say to black people um um, who are anti-capitalist or anti um yeah so so the the thing with black people being anti-capitalist is a false concept that the marxian leninist theory was put into their head and that started with pan-africanism you know Uh, so lenin wrote a book on imperialism saying that imperialism is the reason why we have colonization and uh you know and uh, african countries are poor and everything first and foremost why black people are so poor here's the thing when slavery started uh first of all slavery exists for a very very long time it didn't start just with black people but how slavery with black people occurred it occurred because in order to weaken a a particular group, you need to know the weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses of black people is that we're not united. We, when you see your African fellow man being successful at something, instead of supporting him, you hate him. So it was easier for white folks to use that to enslave black people because when they came in Africa. Most of the slaves were were from the inland. White people were so racist that they would not. They would just start, they would just stay on the coast. They would not go in the inland. They don't know anybody there. So who brought those slaves, those black men from the inland into the coast? 
Someone has to do it. It was their fellow black men. Mm-hmm. They were selling each other. So that was perhaps the greatest weakness that we have in the community. And white folks understood that. And they simply exploited. And this same concept is reflected in the, 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 the field Negro and the house Negro. Where the house mm-hmm. Negro felt to, well, if you guys watch Django, you guys yep. perhaps like yep. saw this concept. So we say like the, 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 the field Negro is inferior to the house Negro who lives with the white uh, slave master feels more superior and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and then now the, the concept of Pan-Africanism grew from that and saying that in order for black people to be liberated, they need to fight against capitalism. But they clearly didn't understand that the definition of capital of capitalism is the uh, is the private means of production. This when the means of production are privately owned. It means that you need to have property rights. You cannot have capitalism without property rights. And they thought that by having socialism, by having by using the dependency theory. They will be able to uh, to liberate themselves. And here's the hypocrisy too. When black people got their freedom, when slavery was abolished, right? A lot of blacks went back to Africa, and they settled in this piece of land called Liberia. That's where the word Liberia comes from, means freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Liberia, it's basically uh, one of the countries that was never colonized. It was, in fact, where the former slaves settled for those who wanted to go back to Africa after slavery. Okay. And what happened? The, the freed slaves who settled in Liberia enslaved the endogenous Liberians. <laughs> really? Look it really? up. Look it up. The first Liberian, the first indigenous, uh, indigenous Liberian president, his name is his name is Samuel K. Doe. Samuel K. Doe. Doe is D O E. Samuel mm-hmm. K. Doe. He was the first Black African Liberian president. Mm-hmm. Before that, all of them were descendants of free slaves. They created a, they completely ostracized Liberian society. So you have the basically the slave masters, so the masters of of Liberian society who were the freed slave, and all the Liberian, all the in, in indigenous Liberians were the poor. Literally, mm. what happened to them here? <laughs> they they replicate the same thing in Liberia. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. So, so the the concept of like oh we need social socialism to 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 against uh, to 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 free us against capitalism is nonsense and and now to come back to Ibram Kendi what Kendi is doing is what Marx and Engels did they say they're anti-capitalist and yet Marx live in England he goes to the library every day right making money drinking his coffee and talk about how capitalism is bad and yet for people who want to visit his grave they got to pay. Mm-hmm. So he's still right, right. even in his death. Yeah, yeah. So people who always say the anti-racist, the anti-capitalist are the they are the complete opposite of what they mm-hmm. say. Yeah, they and even like, like 
because sorry to me like if you say you are an anti-capitalist please leave the market economy and go live in a place where there is no market economy at least like, stand stand by your words mm-hmm. but you can't say mm-hmm. you're anti this and you live in the, in the place you're you you live in the place you're completely against about it doesn't make sense and right. and, yeah. and reaping the benefits of that system yeah exactly and you say, oh, I'm, I'm anti-capitalist. Move to Venezuela. Move to Cuba. Mm-hmm. Move to North Korea. But that's not real socialism. Right? <laughs> because mm-hmm. it, it, it fails. But socialism is doomed to fail because you, you abolish private property. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. Well, since we're on the topic of um, you know, race and capitalism and being black, um, as, you know, some of the work of Thomas Sowell um, was my introduction as a uh, to economics he's a black economist and 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 he and he was just talking about like the idea of the word capitalism isn't even a word that capitalists use or it was a name given to people who actually had actually who actually believed in the free market yeah. um but like uh marx was using the term capitalism to um to call that's what he was calling people who believed in the free market yeah and, and so soul is just arguing that um capitalism is not a system He's like, it's not a system. It's, it's a market with little government intervention. Yeah. Where people are free to make, um, make trade um, as, um, as they please. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and he's, he's right. Marx, in fact, used capitalism in a derogatory sense. is to, is to uh, make the owners of the means of production feel guilty about the wealth, you know, it's, yeah, it's to make them feel bad about it. Like, oh, you're a capitalist, you, you, you're depriving people, you have all the capital for yourself. Mm-hmm. Me personally, yeah, I know I'm a big capitalist and I'm proud of it. I don't know why people, like, it's, if there's one thing I really hate is poverty. There's nothing good about being poor. Mm-hmm. People should not be proud to be poor. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, we're the poor, we're the good guys. Like they, they always try to make people think like, oh, the poor, the good guys, the rich are the bad guys. Yeah, uh, but you know what? I'd also add like, and I guess like from me because I look at things through um, a theological framework, mm-hmm. and so the idea of sin and mm-hmm. people doing wrong, mm-hmm. um, I, I I don't I don't think that it's associated with a particular um, school, of school of thought. Yeah, school of thought. So for example, um. You know, people who are capitalists can be evil, mm-hmm. right? They they can be bad people. They could be good people. People who are socialist um, could be good people. Um, they could be bad people. Mm-hmm. Um, but capitalism doesn't make people bad. Socialism doesn't make people good. Um, people are going to make make their decisions. But I, I would say um, certain types of the, certain ideologies will incentivize better behavior. So hence hence why the free market. Um, will incentivize better behavior because if you treat your customers well and you provide services people need, uh, you'll be rewarded by your customers or even by the government mm-hmm. in the Absolutely. sense that you'll get those tax exemptions um, the better you do and, and, and the more service you provide mm-hmm. um, versus mm-hmm. an incentive um, in, in a socialist um, um, perspective where you're incentivized not to do anything but to take from others. Yeah. Absolutely, I I entirely agree. So, uh, capitalism is about serving your the free market. The free market is about serving your fellow man. It's about mm-hmm. you know it's and that's what Adam Smith said. It's 
uh, it's people serving their fellow men by pursuing the self-interest. Yes, yes. And, 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 and yeah, go ahead. And, and, and there is nothing, and to me, the, the righteous, the righteous way to become a good person is to provide a service to people. So that's why when entrepreneurs like uh, Jeff Bezos are so rich, I don't know why people are mad. I say like, you have, there are generally two ways to become extremely wealthy. By, you know, first it was the aristocrat. The aristocratic class, in fact, was created basically once a war, uh, so once a, a war occurred, and the victory side was taking all the material wealth of the losing side. And that's how they create the wealth and then they pass it on to the generations. But these people didn't create wealth the proper way. And then you have the entrepreneur who take risk, who take his capital without a guarantee that his idea would be successful, create something that provides value to people and to society as a whole. He's making mm -hmm. money off that and people are mad. Mm -hmm. He hasn't. Yeah. He hasn't killed anyone. He hasn't steal from anyone. So why are you mad? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think aristocrat, like people like uh, Marie Antoinette, all these rich aristocrats in the 1700s in Europe who basically build the wealth from stealing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we had an no. episode with Holly Fretwell um, from Perk, and, and we titled it Raid versus Trade. Right, like that yeah. was that's essentially what you're talking about, right? That it's a dichotomy before between you gener you got your wealth by stealing it or or yeah. you know raiding other people and acquiring it, or you traded and created wealth. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you look at Mensa Musa, when people thought, oh, Mensa Musa is the richest man uh, of all time. Well, mm -hmm. when you compare Mensa Musa to J.D. Rockefeller, Mensa Musa created his wealth by war, killing people. Yes. All the people that were living in the Mali Empire were his mm -hmm. subject. It was the Levitan. Whatever resources in that land was his. Everyone, everything that was happening was his. But J.D. Rockefeller started not necessarily dead poor, but he didn't even finish high school. He started his business and created value to people. Yeah. Yeah, no, we, we actually did an episode. Um, who wants to be a billionaire? <laughs> and we um we talked I about Mensa Musa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we doesn't. Yeah, yeah, talked about Mensa Musa, but we looked at how those billionaires, um, created their wealth. That's what Joel and I were investigating. Like, okay, these guys are rich. How did they get their money? Um, and and I think to answer to kind of uh point back to what you were saying, Germinal, about you know people hating those who are doing well, um. Yeah, I think of um, a quote from the rapper Nas um, from the song, um, You Can Hate Me Now. <laughs> and he says, right. people hate what they don't understand. You know, exactly. People fear what they don't understand, hate what they can't conquer, right? Exactly. And, and so, that, you know, and people are ignorant. So the idea is like, even just generally, even as we talk about capitalism, just to be clear, like, you know, we don't live in a pure capitalistic economy right there's no there's, it's not a pure free market that we live no, in there's no, no such thing right and, and i think i think it's important for people to know that that it, that you know all of our economies are a mixture of both yeah um um social control and free market the truth is the free market is an ideal it has never existed 
the same way right. communism has never existed. They're both ideals. It's something we aspire to, but it has never existed. Even uh, Adam Smith, who theorized about the free market, was some he supported some government intervention. Sure, very minimal, but still. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there was some stuff that he saw government was necessary, like you know, building some infrastructures, which is to some extent I don't disagree with that, but like yeah, the free market has never ever existed per se. It's something <laughs> we keep aspiring to, and, you know, mm-hmm. but I don't think we will ever achieve that. I agree. So I I want to slightly transition, but I think there's a there's when you guys were talking about um you know, the successful, you know, let's say entrepreneurs during the, the time of slavery. Mm-hmm. And, and then it ties into what you're just talking about now. What's, what was interesting is those people, while they may not have a legally protected property right, mm-hmm. the people they were interacting with voluntarily recognized their property rights because they yes. recognized that not stealing from them, i.e. not making them a slave of them, was going mm-hmm. to be more prosperous um, by continuing to engage in trade, and so this idea of you know uh, preserve you know voluntarily allowing that person to preserve their property right was more mm-hmm. advantageous. And so, um, I, it sounds like you know when you're talking about minimal government, um, mm-hmm. you know, protecting property rights and you know preventing the unjust enslavement of another. Um, is where you see the role of government, and I, I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit, um, and, and maybe I'll follow up a little bit about with uh, Frederick Bastiat's The Law, because sure. So, and and yeah, sure. So that's where I've always come into a staunch disagreement with ANCAPs. So I've always seen government as a necessary evil. We do need government. Now the question is to what extent we do need government. And I believe that we need government for basic protection. We need government to protect us against foreign enemies, against, but also against domestic enemies. And we need government to secure our properties. So if someone, for instance, trespass into my property, I can uh, go to the court of law and the court of law will adjudicate on the case. So that it's, it is for those reasons that we do need government. And I also see government building some infrastructures to some extent, because like, like some roads and bridges, I think they can either be built by private means too, that's fine, or by the government too. I'm not against the government building roads. Mm. But the anarcho-capitalists are saying like, oh, we don't need government for this and that and that and that. Here's the thing. The problem is that I think, first of all, they have a very naive approach to human nature. This approach to human nature is that they think that just by incentive, people will, will buy, having incentive, people will, will respect each other. But in every society, you always have a madman somewhere mm-hmm. that always want more than anyone else. And the greatest vice of human nature is domination. We always aspire to dominate others. That's mm-hmm. why slavery exists. Mm-hmm. Slavery is simply dominating 
the other person like you see your neighbor he has less than you so you enslave him and you're making you know you turn into your property and stuff like that but that's and and, and that is the fundamental vice of human nature is domination so in a society where we do not have a third party to protect our basic rights it's a matter of time before another form of slavery takes takes place and but the uncaps are arguing because the thing is logically makes sense they think it's fine but i'm like can you, can you guys stop doing thought experiment mm -hmm. Because thought experiment doesn't mean it is necessarily true. You're carrying an experiment in the imagination. That's what thought experiment is. And they hold on to it as if it was the word of the Bible. I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> you don't, no, seriously, like they, they don't understand it. Like at the end of the day, let's say we have no government, but let's say there's a plane flying above your house. And that plane is flying, I don't know, like, a thousand feet above your house is that is that plane violating your property mm -hmm. if you don't have government to determine what are the legal rights for property how how would you know them no one would mm -hmm. because people will always fight about what is theirs mm -hmm. that's why it's important to have to have a a, a, a a government to at least protect those basic things. I'm not saying that government should be here and do everything. Of course not. You guys know I'm a staunch advocate of classical liberalism and the free market. But the free market only works properly when you have uh, a system protected by laws. Investors mm -hmm. will never invest in a system that is unstable. And how is the system stable when the rule of law is applied and maintained? And okay, and who applied the rule of law? Is government? You need government to apply the rule of law. Yes. Okay. Well. Okay. Let me ask you this then, because yeah, uh, yeah I know you've done work on um, on what's going on in Africa and, and still tying this back to race and government. So, mm -hmm. like, like politically. Like people will say the problem with, with Africa is um was imperialism, was the white man coming and ruining Africa. But now that, you know, the white man's been removed and you have black leadership, what's wrong with Africa um politically? A rent seeking. Oh boy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, rent seeking. We've, we've spoken about that. But right. okay, but okay, okay, but but for those who don't know what rent seeking is, what is rent seeking? So rent seeking is basically when people use public resources to build their own wealth without creating new wealth for society as a whole. Mm -hmm. That's what rent seeking is. It's like you use resources that are not yours to build your personal wealth and the personal wealth that you build doesn't contribute to the wealth of society. Mm -hmm. Like, um, lobby, we, well, we call them lobby groups, um, yeah. that lobby well, the government. Exactly. Yep, yeah. lobby groups, log rolling. Yep, those those things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so what's wrong? So what, what would you say is the problem with what's going on um, with uh, the political system in certain African countries? I should say. Well, first of all, the rule of law is something that is not. It okay. So the rule of law in Africa is not applied. You see, in Western countries, the rule of law is it's a cultural thing. If there's one thing that white people successfully did was to develop a a cultural behavior of the rule of law. 
So they always made sure that they respect what they wrote. So whatever is written in the constitution or you know whatever policy or regulation that is written, they respect it. They apply it on themselves too. In Africa, it is extremely rare to see a head of state leaving power on his own. That's why you always see coup d'etat there. Every time they have coup d'etat. Why? Because people don't respect what they, why, what, what they write down. Mm. They don't respect their constitutions. They don't respect their, their, their charts. They, they, they don't respect their, their, their policies, their regulations. They don't respect any of that. On top of that, politics is a business there. Politics is perhaps like one of the fastest way to build wealth for yourself. That's why there's so much corruption in African politics. African politics is not about ideology. It's about... Uh, access to power? Access to power cl- uh, cl- and uh, clientelism when you actually pay people to vote for you. Mm. Yeah, like that's... that's what? After, like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's called lobbying in Canada. Yeah, it's lobbying. About? It's the same thing. It's oh. just like here... It's just like here, you guys do it like legally. That's all. <laughs> you got legalized it. And corruption is the same thing. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's like basically pay people to vote for you. It's like you see, for instance, let's say you 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 start you create a political party. So in Africa, so it at least in the West, the the members of the political party are the one making donations to the party for the party to grow its capital. You know. In Africa, it's the opposite. You have to have a lot of money in order to start in politics because you're the one that will be feeding your voter, your members of the party, so that to incentivize them to vote for you. Like most people don't understand why they even vote there they, because we don't do politics based on ideology. It's based on the, 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 the person you like or he's from, your, he's from the same tribe as yours. And stuff like that. That's why. And we don't have, as I said, we did not develop a, a cultural behavior of the rule of law. We never prioritized the law to be the thing above anything else. We never subject ourselves to the law. Our vision of the law has always been that of Louis XIV, like Le Roi Soleil, I am the law. So whoever is in power is the law. Right? So it's it's those things that basically made Africa pretty backward, specifically in the political sense. We never respect our institutions. We have a huge issue with uh, respecting the law of our institutions. In America, we strongly respect the institutions. And not just in America, but in the West, we respect our institutions. That's why Western countries are so advanced. Because they 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 understood that in order to build a stable society where we can create value and wealth, we need to have a society that is peaceful. Mm-hmm. Money mm-hmm. doesn't like a place where there is no stability. You cannot have money if there is no stability. Right. Mm-hmm. We did an episode where we were talking about you know foreign aid. I can't remember the episode off the top of my head. I'll probably put it in the show notes page. But you know what you were discussing about power and corruption and you know um i can't remember the term you used for it but i jokingly referenced lobbying here you know the the issue we identified and a lot of economists have identified with foreign aid is that you're 
you're essentially funding those people who don't have a vested interest in actually bringing up the wealth of their nation, but actually they're using those funds to maintain their political power. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you know, giving out just enough breadcrumbs to, you know, sort of perceive that the foreign aid is effective. And and I'm just curious if you have maybe done some work on that or or some insights onto uh the the failures of foreign aid. No, I haven't done any particular work <clears throat> on this yet, but uh you're just you're you're actually pitching a new idea here. <laughs> I should no. I should do uh, more research and do a uh, and conduct a statistical analysis on the impact of foreign aids on you know on the uh, on the creation or should I say the improvement of people's economic condition. So no, but I haven't done any specific work yet. Mm-hmm. But but I think the culture that you're describing is why the foreign aid, at least from you know the research we did, what we brought up in that episode. You know, mm-hmm. demonstrates that it really isn't achieving the means um, because there's rent seeking that goes on, and and you're yeah. you're you're giving the money to corrupt political leaders. Exactly. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, political leaders. There, we don't do. We don't have strong audits. Hmm. We don't. We it's you see all of this about the rule of law. Mm-hmm. The rule of law is simply an idea. It's an ideal of. Uh, not seeing yourself above the rules of society. That's all. That's what the rule of law is. Yeah. Is that everyone is sub is is, is subject to the same laws, mm-hmm. whether you're the president or you're a shoemaker. The law applies to everyone else. Maybe sure the the treatment might be different, but the law applies to everyone else. Mm-hmm. But in Africa, we did not develop that. We have, uh, because African culture, we tend to, we have that cultural feature of having a respect for our elders, a respect for the authoritative figure. So when you are in a position of power, we consider you as the authoritative figure. And therefore, whatever you say, uh, for spe- specifically for people who are not that educated, they just blindly follow what you're saying mm-hmm. without really questioning. But that was the same in Europe too during the Middle Age. <laughs> it mm-hmm. was the same too. That's when, you know, liberalism came when people start questioning the decision making of authoritative figures. The church, uh, the kings, the emperors. People started to question their decision making. That's when liberalism was created as a principle and as a uh, as a political ideology mm-hmm. so uh, but liberalism is not applicable in our culture in african culture because uh, african culture is not a liberal culture in the sense that you don't in african mm. culture you don't get to question authority like that okay okay <laughs> Uh, no, kind of like, hold, hold, no, I was going to say, <laughs> it's funny you say that because, uh, so, uh, okay, so I go to church, um, my church is in the heart of the city, mm-hmm. very multicultural, and um, a lot of my students are Congolese, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and so, um, when when they're about to graduate school or whatever, and, you know, you know I'll give them my advice about, you know, um, doing what they want to do, they say, well, no. My parents tell me yeah. what to do. 
They exactly. tell me what what my career is going to be. And I'm like, well, no, they can't tell you what your career is going to be because it's your life and you're and you're grown. I'm like, oh, Yo, you a grown man. You know what I mean? But they'll be like, well, no, you can't you can't question authority like that. That's exactly. not how it works in the African home, Darnell. Maybe oh, in Jamaica, yeah. maybe Jamaicans, you guys in the Caribbean, you guys could do whatever you want. But he's like, is us Africans? Nah, man. Uh, we no, can't and, do what and, we and want. That, yep. Now you understand it's in African culture. That's what I meant. But interestingly for me, it wasn't really the case. My parents never forced me to do something I didn't really want. My parents are pretty westernized, mm. as a matter of fact. So I'm like really an exception. I'm 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 a outlier. I'm a, I'm a real exception to the rule because a typical conservative African family, no, you do as they say. Afri- African culture is very conservative. It's a very conservative culture. You don't question authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and a, a typical African parent will always say, so long as you live under my roof, you follow my rules. Mm-hmm. That's the typical African parent. He said, whenever you start making your money and you leave, that's up to you. You do what you want. But so long as you live in my house, it's my rules. So if I say, don't go out, so if I say by nine o'clock, you have to be home. You better be home by nine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that, uh, that's, you know, the Western culture has definitely got a little more rebellious nature to, uh, <laughs> to especially towards parents. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to circle back around because I think, you know, as much as you were criticizing, let's say, the, the ANCAP perspective, mm-hmm. um, there, you know, you made a really good comment regarding roads, but you, you sort of also referenced um, the idea that, with, you didn't say this explicitly, but I see you talking about, well, I'm not opposed to competition with regards to roads. And, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the, the ANCAP position um, or, or let's say counter argument to be to what you said would be that government monopoly has prevented the ability for entrepreneurs to create solutions to these problems, and and so there's an aspect, and, and I think along those lines there is a valid question that that I think you would agree with that we don't. I would argue we don't actually wrestle with enough, which is the concept of how do we do just justice enforcement, right? So. You know the critique. We, I brought that up, or that question was sort of what I talked about through when we did an episode on uh, defunding the police and all those arguments, mm-hmm. right? Though there's no conversation about okay, how do we do justice enforcement more justly? Um, because we can see many injustices in that case. The reason I want to bring up you know the the ANCAP pushbacks is, you know, I think you would argue monopolies are bad, mm-hmm. and and so um. Would you then qualify yourself as a with a political view? We want to minimize the government monopoly oh, as yeah, much as possible. Course. I mean, that's that's at least that that's the least we could do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, of course, minimize government monopoly. Now, what um, with respect to uh, the rule of law, as mm-hmm. you you know, the dilemma I would argue is that we all the current system, you know, the the North American system, the the Western democracies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's Winston Churchill is like, it's a horrible system, but it's the best system we've ever had. I, I could be brutalizing the quote and the person. But what comes to my mind is, reg- like, if you look at, uh, look at law, right now, we don't have equal treatment under the law. If you have access to resources, you have a different treatment than under the law because you can access lawyers and, and different things in a way that 
fundamentally changes the probabilities of certain outcomes. Mm-hmm. And and so um how do we, you know, look at let's say the ANCAP criticisms and and start to say, okay, yes, we need to incorporate these things to remove the problems that you would argue would happen under their system, but are clearly happening under the system we have today. So one thing I would say is to basically uh, either minimize or even or even eliminate um, office politics. Because let's say, for instance, the police, right? Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why the, the police is doing what they're doing is because they have qualified immunity. Mm-hmm. So if you remove, for instance, qualified immunity, it's going to change the rules. And that's what public choice theory explains is that rules, the change of rules determine a change of behavior. It's like changing gears. Let me give you an analogy. Do you guys watch soccer? Yeah. Okay. So who, which, uh, let's say for example, which, uh, who is your favorite free kick taker? Uh, well, I mean, can you not pick Ronaldo? Okay, so you have Ronaldo, you have Pirlo, Ronaldinho, Juninho, all these guys. So let's yeah, yeah. let's pick Juninho for instance, because Juninho okay. is known for that. Okay. If the rule of having free kick did not exist in soccer, Ju- Juninho would have been completely useless. <laughs> it's true. The, 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 that's how soccer is like. Not just soccer, but the point is to say that certain rules, rules make certain things extremely relevant. So mm-hmm. I think that if you withdraw, if you apply a new rule, for instance, for the police, let's say we completely get rid of qualified immunity, then police officers would be more hesitant to use excessive force against civilians because they know that, you know, everything is now put on camera. They know that if they use that, specifically if they don't have qualified immunity, their pension, everything is out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But because they have, because that rule still stands, that's why they allow themselves to behave like to behave like that. So I think it's yes. just a matter of changing the rules. Mm-hmm. Changing the rules will force people to adjust their behaviors. Yeah. Well, and and that's what I love about you know Frederick Bastiat's that that you know let's call it essay, but the book, mm-hmm. the law. You know, he really points out that we have legalized, I mean, he uses legalized plunder as an example, but but things that we don't allow the individual citizen to do, mm-hmm. we've we allow the government to do, and then we allow it to continue to expand. Yeah. Right. In in ways that um, you know, be, and, and if we sort of held that principle that okay, if we're gonna allow the government to do something the general population can't do, we should be very, very skeptical of allowing that. Yeah, because and 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 the reason why is because the government is run by men too. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the government is is run. Institutions are run by human beings. It's no robots is who are running those institutions. The human beings too, and that's why they argue again in public choice theory. That's why they say politics without romance. Look at politics from a scientific economic standpoint. The people in politics have aspirations. And they're gov- and they're 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 governed by the self interest the same way people in the private sectors are too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they're no different than from they're no different from us. So we have to to see them and judge them the same way we judge entrepreneurs. Meaning that 
in order for people to not abuse their position of power, you have to change the rules the, because the rules will force them to adjust themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think the best way now to change the rules, for instance, is through a referendum, you know, like changing amendments and constitutions. I strongly believe in those things. Like, I think those things are possible. I don't think getting just rid of the government will, will, will solve the problem because getting rid of the government will simply give we simply give birth to a new state led by corporations. That's what it is. It's mm-hmm. just a bunch of corporations now acting as a state. Well, the state, the, the only counter argument to that, I would say is a corporation mm-hmm. is a creation of the state. Uh, okay, sure. Yeah. Corporations are, cre- are a creation of the state. Like okay. without the state, you don't have a corporation. There, there, there is no, you know, the enforcement of the rules that garner that system don't exist. But here's the thing, though. Look at Amazon for now. Mm-hmm. Amazon is a corporation. Let's say we completely get rid of the U.S. government. Amazon is still here. Mm-hmm. Amazon, Apple, so basically the GAFAs will become the new state because they're the ones controlling uh, free speech. Can you imagine Twitter banned the president of the United States? Yeah. <laughs> well, this is powerful, man. Yeah. No, and, and, and I mean, I think there, there's a fair point that, like, you know, we can't turn into Ancapistan tomorrow and pretend like, you know, all of the current systems problems just go away. Um, because, I mean, all of the, uh, almost all of the tech, big tech companies have mm-hmm. relationships or funding from historical government scenarios. Yes. Right. And so there, the, I would, I think where we would definitely agree on, and, mm-hmm. and where the criticisms from the ANCAP world would be that our corporations are becoming more and more crony capitalist in nature. And that is, you know, the biggest aspect of our problems because we're allowing corporate and lobby interests to wield the monopoly power. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I think maybe, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to, to bring you back and, and we can, uh, talk through <laughs> some of that a little bit more. Uh, oh, no, definitely, sure. definitely. Yeah. It's, no, uh, definitely. I mean, the, the, the NCAP question is, uh, it's a little complicated. I, mm-hmm. Personally, like, I'm more in favor of having a minarchy state than a completely anarcho-capitalist state, because at least like, I, I, I really believe that we still do need some sort of government. At least for the very basic stuff. I'm not saying that we need it for more, but at least when it comes to private property, if your property is being violated, you want it to be able to at least resort to the court of law, you know, to yeah. get justice. Yeah. And in an, in an ANCAP, if the law is privatized, I don't think the law will serve people uh, at least equally. You know, mm-hmm. in terms of the process, instead of due process, I think whoever pays the most money to the judges will get his due process. Yeah, I think so, I think you're, you know, essentially, it's a great sort of summary of all of this conversation about that. At the end of the day, preservation of property rights is fundamental for capitalism. It does mm-hmm. create inequality, but it also creates wealth creation. And I would argue, and I'm sure you would, and Darnell would, that. We need mm. that in order to minimize the amount of poverty. If we want to raise more people oh, yeah. out of poverty, I, I, per- preserving property rights um, is, I, is fundamental. 
I, I wrote an article at the Mises Institute, I think like a year or yeah, a year ago. And even Rand Paul shared my article on his Facebook and uh, Instagram. So I was saying there are two kinds of in, of inequalities. You have healthy and unhealthy inequalities. Mm. Healthy, yeah, healthy equality is what we know. Property rights. People manage their resources differently. Therefore, we're gonna have diff- we're gonna have different results, which will create inequality. But it is healthy because it's because pe- it's people bringing their talents. Talent is not uniform. It is universal, but it is not uniform. So whatever skill you have, you apply that to the management of your resource to, you know, to create your wealth. So the result will be different for everyone. So this is to me healthy inequality. It is healthy. And then you have unhealthy inequality, which is what? Rent seeking. Mm. Because you have politicians using the wealth of society to using society's resources to inflate the wealth without bringing it back to to Mm. society as a whole. That's unhealthy. And that's then that kind of inequality impoverished, impoverished countries even more compared to the healthy inequality that I think we have in the United States and Western Europe, where like people take the take the entrepreneurial route, you know, create a product or service that they believe would benefit society and based on how they manage their their resources and selling their product or service, they make money and change things. Wow. That was good. That's a good point. Yeah, so yeah, well, 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 thank you. Thank you for um, your insights and uh, being so generous with your time, Germinal. We really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners um, would. Uh, now, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, where could they find you? Well, Instagram is the, the spot to be. <laughs> I also have my website, but my website is more like for my papers and articles that I write. But uh, so, but yeah, anyone can, can, can sign up to my newsletter. But uh, Instagram is definitely where to find me. I'm on Facebook too, so, but I'm not really. On, I don't really use it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are, um, how come you're not on Twitter? A guy like you who has uh, opinions and, and Twitter works, <laughs> you know, um, is a place where people exchange ideas, sort of. But, but see, the thing is, um, it's a I don't like Twitter. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you look at my post, I love explaining things. Mm. And in Twitter, you don't, you cannot really explain. You only use hashtags. I don't mm-hmm. like hashtags. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I use hashtags to get, you know, to, <laughs> to get a account reaching, but that's it. I like it. If you go on my post, you see that whatever thing I post, it's always a lengthy thing I write because I love explaining things. Mm-hmm. That's my professorial tutorial part of me. I love teaching. I love explaining things. So and in on Twitter uh, on Twitter I, I won't be able to to do that on Instagram I can so that's why I'm more on Instagram than anything else. Oh okay okay it, it would have been fun to have you on Twitter have you in the uh, Twitterverse <laughs> yeah <laughs> that um, Twitter's uh, Darnell's uh, you know uh, method of of engagement primarily yeah I love I love Twitter man <laughs> yeah. I, I used to be I, I think I, I think I'll try to come back on Twitter at some point but it, yeah, just yeah, yeah. I, IG has been. I mean, I just been good to me. I just, mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. been good to me, and uh, yeah, you've grown grown a pretty decent audience on there too. And, yeah, I and, mean, I you know, I'm trying, and yeah. I, I hate blocking people, but there's some people that need <laughs> yeah. to no, I really hate doing that. 
but <laughs> just that some people just take things a little too personal. I'm like, yo, you don't even know me, man. <laughs> First of all, and then you know, is for real. If there is, I'm posting the thing on my page. I didn't invite you to come on my page, so why do you have to comment? Right. <laughs> why yeah. do you have to comment? Just read it, especially with negativity. Yeah, just read it and scroll and move on with your day. I never yeah. comment on people's page. I do that for a reason. Mm, never. Yeah, yeah. You write your thing, even if I disagree, I'm not going to bother. Because, okay, you comment. How your comment is going to change suddenly my whole perception <laughs> of the world? Well, especially if it's negative or just sort of, you know, sort of a off the cuff comment, as opposed to actually exactly. engaging, challenging, yeah. and, and, you know, presenting something worth to having dialogue over. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when people challenge me, that's fine. But when you're trying to go for straw men, that's when I block you. If you're coming <laughs> and challenging my point, sure, no problem. I mean, my, my platform is pretty democratic for that one. You know, you're free to write a counter argument. But when people start doing straw men, I'm like, all right, dude. First of all, I don't follow you back for purpose because you don't mean much to me. <laughs> and on top of that, I didn't invite you to comment and and comment your, your bull crap on my page. <laughs> and then people always, oh, yeah, it, it's, I really don't get how people feel the need to, 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 to write their opinion. I'm like, dude, it's not going to change anything. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so stop. Yeah. I yeah. mean, if, if, if it's like, you know, to, as I said, if it's like to make a counter argument to, to challenge my position, that's fine. This is productive. Mm-hmm. But just to, Make strawman arguments because you disagree. No, I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I do not tolerate that. Yeah, no, I I like that a lot. We try to be uh, strawman free here. Um, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, th- thank you again, and uh, hopefully, thank you guys. Really appreciate it. Hopefully, we yeah, can we gotta do this again. Time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, George, you know where to find me. So whenever, <laughs> if you have any, um, if you have any idea that you think is worth being discussed, just let me know in advance and I can do my own research if I haven't, you know, touched on that idea yet. Yeah. And yeah. then, uh, yeah, and then we can discuss it. Well, uh, well I, know yeah, you, sure. I know you've got some work you've been doing on, on uh, COVID and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, as, yeah. that, as that publishes and, and gets out there and continues, you know, maybe that'll be, uh, maybe on the other side of the craziness, we can uh, start dialoguing about the data. It's a Definitely. Little, it did a little crazy right now, but yes, uh, hopefully yeah. <laughs> we'll have you back. Thank you Definitely. again. All right. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. But you heard me. Does that make sense? Madden and Mitchell Media. <laughs> <laughs>